word. And as you stand, I would invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We, uh, <clears throat> we heard already this morning God telling us from Isaiah 66 that the one to whom he looks is the one who trembles at his word. And so this is why we stand for the reading of God's word. We, we show honor and reverence to God for his word. We, we tremble before the reading of it. And that reading is going to be from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. We are quickly approaching the end of our study of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And so we will do that this morning as we hear God's word speak to us about marriage and the roles that husbands and wives play in marriage. So let me begin reading in Ephesians 5 verse 22. This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. In our current day and age, it's strange to think in these ways, but, but marriage has become something that is altogether mysterious. And here's what I mean by that. We, we don't actually know what marriage is. Many seem to be clueless about who invented marriage, what actually constitutes a marriage, and the various purposes that marriage serves. Those are things that we don't know. At the same time, what we do know is equally haunting. We know, for example, that marriage is happening much later in life for many people. We also know that, that fewer people are getting married. And we also know that, that those who are getting married, more of those marriages are ending in divorce than in previous generations. Now, what all of this has done is it's led some to conclude that marriage is nothing but a relic from a bygone age. Just as none of us take our clothes down to the river and, and beat them with rocks in hopes to clean them, well, neither do we really need marriage anymore. But is that true? Is marriage really just a throwaway? And the answer, of course, is a resounding no. And not only that, what Scripture teaches us this morning is that marriage is actually one of the contexts in which 
our Christian life is to be lived out. Let me explain. You'll remember from last week that as Christians, we are commanded, if you look up to Ephesians 5.18, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the evidences of our being filled with the Spirit is that we will be those, if you look at verse 21, who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's what I want you to see, at least right here on the front end. Life in the Spirit is life lived with others, and life in the Spirit is life lived in submission to others. And I would just say in passing that this really is, of course, what much of so-called privatized piety has missed. Such folks tend to think that, that like super spiritual life, to be, to be really filled with the Spirit, well, it consists of sitting quietly and undistracted in the living room, reading the Bible all by yourself while you sort of levitate and are completely isolated from the rest of the world. But Paul is very quick to correct us. The Christian life is not a Gnostic, pie-in-the-sky type of life. No, the Christian life must be lived out in the real world. And more to the point, verse 21, this idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that must be lived out in the real world. So here's the deal. The Spirit-filled life is a life of submission, verse 21. That's the principle at play here. And then in what follows, Paul gives us the practice. Or you could say it this way. Think of submission as sort of the skeleton. And then the rest of Ephesians 5 and the first half of Ephesians 6, it's sort of putting the flesh on the bones. Paul's telling us the spirit-filled life is submitting to one another. Application, so wives are to submit to their husbands. End of Ephesians 5. Children are to submit to their parents. Beginning of Ephesians chapter 6. And then slaves are to submit to their masters. Middle of Ephesians chapter 6. Now I also realize that even the mention of dirty words like submission or its close cousin authority, that these are, again, just sort of icky in a lot of our ears, especially when they come from a white, cisgender, heterosexual man such as myself. And then, to add insult to injury, to say that a wife is to submit to her husband to promote the so-called patriarchy, well, this is all more than enough to bring misunderstanding and offense. So before we actually get into unpacking the text, allow me a couple of very brief caveats, four of them. For starters, even though we live in a world where apparently you have to be a biologist to know what a woman is, the church should be those who affirm both the dignity and honor of womanhood and mothering. We should be those on the front line saying that being a mom, being a wife, being a woman, this is not a subpar calling. It's actually quite glorious. 
And because these are glorious and God-honoring, we should celebrate them. There's nothing about being a woman or a wife or a mom that is like being stuck on the JV squad or something like that. In a related vein, we must also affirm the equality before God of all human beings, irrespective of ethnicity, rank, class, culture, sex, or age. And we must do this because each and every person is made in the image of God. Third, we must also affirm the unity of all Christian believers, man or woman, before the very cross of Christ. Each and every Christian, each and every one of us, we are saved the exact same way, and that is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. So regardless of your chromosomes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and this is all to the glory of God alone, as is revealed to us in Scripture alone. We can't budge on that stuff. Now, fourth, dignity and equality and unity do not, I repeat, do not erase authority, responsibility, and God-appointed roles. Another way to say that would be to say this. There is nothing in our passage that would lead us to believe that a wife's submission to her husband was owing to, like, the inferior culture of Ephesus or something like that. Rather, as Paul would teach us elsewhere, this idea of a wife submitting to her husband, it is rooted in creation itself, not culture. Or as John Stott put it so memorably, this is not chauvinism, but creationism. And let me just really quick add, for those who would argue that a wife's submission to her husband was in fact limited to a particular time and place, and is therefore no longer applicable to us today, I would ask, are those same folks prepared to make that same argument with respect to children? In other words, if you'll notice in your Bibles, right after calling wives to submit to their husbands, Scripture also calls children to submit to their parents. And so we should ask, did that command have an expiration date as well? Was it only for a first century audience in Ephesus? Those who argue for what is called mutual submission, will they do the same when it comes to the parent-child relationship? So let me ask you, dads, moms, are you called upon by God to submit to your five-year-old tomorrow morning when she wakes up and says, I want ice cream for breakfast? And the answer, of course, is no. No in general and no in particular. And that's because these are God-appointed roles, and they are rooted in creation itself, not culture. And what that means is that they don't change. They, 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 They transcend the time and place that we read of them. So, with those brief caveats out of the way, Let's actually get into what the Holy Spirit says to the church. And we're going to start with the wife this morning because that is where Scripture starts. So here's the question for you wives. What is your responsibility? And verse 22 answers. Wives, submit to your own husbands. 
So the posture of the wife, what God's word says, that posture is to be one of submission. So before all of your arms get folded over, when the rubber meets the road, what does that submission look like? How does it sort of get worked out? Let me give you four words. Four words that add some clarity and color to this. First, a wife ought to submit specifically. Specifically. Here's what I mean. Wife, nowhere in Scripture are you called to submit to every single husband on the planet. Our passage says, put your eyes on it, wives, submit to your own husbands. This is your, not someone else's husband, but your own husband. So let's be very quick to say that this passage does not teach that a woman is forever under the boot of every single man on planet Earth. No. First of all, this is directed to wives. And second of all, this is directed to wives submitting to their own husbands. I'll give you a second word. It's the word humbly. A wife ought to submit humbly. And I'm getting that there from the last phrase of verse 22, right? As to the Lord. As to the Lord. The point? Notice, wife, your attitude toward your husband and how you submit to him, it ought to mirror your attitude toward Christ and how you submit to him. And that attitude in both, whether you are submitting to Christ or submitting to your husband, it shouldn't be one of kicking and screaming. It should be one that is marked by humility. To which, if you are a wife, you know that, you know that, well, why? Why is the wife called to submit to her husband? Paul answers in verse 23. He tells us, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, its body, and is himself its savior. So if you were to step back and go, well, who is the head of the church? That's an easy one. Christ is. But if we were to follow up and ask the question, okay, well, who is the head of the marriage covenant? We might sort of be a little hesitant. But Scripture is not. Just as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. And so this is why Paul says that wives ought to submit to their husbands because the husband is the, the head. Now, two truths immediately flow out of this idea of the husband being the head. On the one hand, headship here signifies authority. And there can be no doubt about that at all. That's what is intended here by headship. Because the husband is the head, he has a peculiar authority derived from Christ himself. That's what scripture teaches us, right? So, so headship equals authority. That's the point. Maybe some of you have seen the movie my big fat Greek wedding. There's a scene where the daughter, if I remember right, is complaining to her mother about her father because he's the head of the home and everything always goes his way. And so if you remember the scene, the mother is seeking to console her daughter and she reassures her, yes, honey, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she turns the head wherever she wants. She has this really good, thick Greek accent, which I won't try to parrot. And that's, that's true. It's funny. We chuckle because it's funny. And I will even concede that in a lot of instances, it might even be true. But that is not 
what Paul is teaching us. The husband is the head, and therefore he has been entrusted with a peculiar authority. But, and here is the other truth that flows from this idea of headship, lest we get off balance, okay? The headship here, it ought to express itself not so much in control, but care. It's, it's less about ruling, and it's more about responsibility. And I say that because, notice, right after identifying the husband as the head of the wife, Paul draws a parallel with Christ's headship over the church. You see that? And notice how Christ, as the head of the church, uh, as the head is the church's what? End of verse 23. It's Savior. So husband, it is true that you have been given a measure of authority over your wife. But notice that that is an authority not for you to be a tyrant or to treat her like a doormat. It is an authority for you as a husband to serve her, to care for her, to be her savior. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's return to this idea of the wife and her submission. A wife ought to submit specifically, she ought to submit humbly, and now third, she ought to submit totally. I'm getting that again from verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, here it is, in everything to their husbands. I'm not going to grow weary in saying this, notice the parallel again. The church is required to submit to Christ in everything, well, so also is the wife required to submit to her husband in everything. This is exemplified well in a story that I heard about Bethan Lloyd-Jones, wife of uh, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great 20th century medical doctor turned pastor. Bethan was once asked the following question by another woman, what if my husband wakes me up at 3 a.m. demanding I fetch him ice cream? Am I to go and get it? And supposedly, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones responded without missing a beat, yes, and then you ought to phone for the doctor because that is clearly not a well man. <laughs> the point is, Christian wives, you ought to joyfully submit to your husbands. Again, take it up with the author, not me, verse 24, in everything. This should be your posture. This should be your disposition. There's also something of an asterisk at the end of verse 24. Like all of this in Scripture, there is a limiting principle. Like all earthly submission, there's, there's brakes and seatbelts and airbags. Wives, not only can you resist, but you must resist... If your husband forbids you to do what God commands or commands you to do what God forbids. Now, much more could be said about that and how we sort of tease out that principle and, and how it looks. But for our overview purposes, that's a pretty good way this morning to articulate the principle. Wife, you must submit, or rather, you must resist when your husband forbids you to do what God commands or commands you to do what God forbids. So for example, if on the way home, your husband tells you, 
you have to help me rob 7-Eleven, and then he quotes Ephesians 5 to you, you have the right, rather, you have the obligation to say, no way, Jose, I ain't going to submit to you. But that's kind of an easy one. At least, I hope that's an easy one for this congregation. What about this? Let's say you are on vacation, and it's a Sunday morning, and your husband wants to sleep in and go play golf. To such a request, wife, you should say, no. No. We are commanded by Christ to gather with the saints and to worship him on the Lord's day. Or, let's say your husband wants to spice up the bedroom by adding pornography. Wife, you must protest. No. The marriage bed is to be held in honor. Or, let's say your husband is white-knuckling the tithe check so he can save up for a boat. Again, you must voice your resistance. You must say, wife, no. Part of our obedience to Christ is that we faithfully give a tenth back. Wife, in all of this, you are compelled not to submit, but in actuality to resist. But again, hopefully those are all exceptions. The rule, of course, is that you have a default posture, one of happy and glad submission. But when resistance is necessitated, let's recognize that, that no matter what, even if you are resisting, even if you have to put your foot down, wife, and say no, you must do so. And here's our fourth and final word. You must do so, wife, respectfully. Look there at the end of verse 23. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Can we all agree? There's submitting, and then there's submitting, right? So a wife can submit to her husband, all the while murmuring under her breath and complaining. She can do exactly what he asks her to do. And then at first chance, she can go tell all of her girlfriends how stupid he is. Or she can submit respectfully, honoring him as her head. Now, can we recognize that in both cases, she is doing what he asks but only in the latter case is she actually submitting to him in a way that honors him and in a way that honors Christ. All right, wives, you can take a deep breath. We'll leave you alone for a minute. That's the responsibility of the wife. Her disposition is to be one of submission. Let's shift gears to the husband. What is his responsibility? Men, what is your responsibility as a husband? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. I want you to notice something, something that I've recognized in our almost 15 years of marriage and in my, what is it, 8, 10 years of, of pastoring this congregation. This is something that I've recognized. <laughs> if the wife is called to submission, something that she tends to struggle with, can we acknowledge that? Then please hear this, the husband is also called to something that he struggles with. A lot of men struggle with loving their wife. 
But when the rubber meets the road, again, what does this love look like? And again, let me offer you four words. Four words that offer clarity and color. First, a husband ought to love unconditionally. Look again at verse 25. And as you do, notice again how Paul connects the husband's love of his wife to Christ's love for the church. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ. You see the equal sign? As Christ loved the church. So let me ask you, how does Christ love his bride? Does Christ not love his bride unconditionally? And if so, then husband, you are called to follow suit. This immediately reveals one of the glaring problems, though, and that is for husbands, way too many of us only read verse 22. And we think that we're like Jabba the Hutt, and our wife is chained to us, as if our wives exist to cook and clean and gratify sexually. Husband, if that is your attitude, then hear me loud and clear, you must repent. Your job is to love your wife. Your job is to love her unconditionally. It's true, you are the head. You have been given a measure of authority. But, but you ought to wield that authority in such a way where you lead her in love. And I can assure you of this. I know that not every marriage in this sanctuary is ideal. Husband, if you would lead by loving her, I can assure you that she will be more apt to follow you in joyful submission. But you might respond, Pastor, you don't understand. My wife is insufferable. She doesn't deserve such love. Fair enough, let me ask. Do you? Do you deserve such love? And I ask because the parallel here is between your love for your wife and Christ's love for the church. So do we, does, does the church, do we deserve Christ's love? Are we worthy of that? No. Scripture teaches, Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were pristine, Christ died for us. While we were sinners. Wife, I will concede, your husband might not be worthy of your submission. Offer it anyway, for Christ's sake. And it could be true, husband, your wife might not be worthy of your love. Again, offer it anyway for Christ's sake. Brings us to our second word. Husbands ought to love sacrificially. Sacrificially. Given what Paul told the wife about her submission in verse 22 and the husband's headship, you might very well be excused for expecting verse 25 to read us a little bit differently. You might have thought that what should follow in verse 25 is husbands rule over your wives. Husbands domineer. Husbands use and abuse and trample your wives. 
Do you know that if you were the original hearer of Paul's letter, you would, you would really be excused for making that mistake? Why? Catch this. From what we know about ancient Greco-Roman household codes, never ever are husbands called to love their wives. You understand that? Literally, in everything that we have outside of sacred scripture during this time period, never are husbands called to love their wives. That lets you know really quick how countercultural the gospel is, don't you? It, it, it immediately sort of keys us into the fact that the gospel changes everything. Husband, you are to love your wife. And you, husband, are to love her by following in Christ's footsteps and sacrificing for her. That's what verse 25 brings out, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So just as Christ laid down his life for the church, so too, husband, you were called to lay down your life for your bride. Now, of course, you can't make atonement for your wife. That's not the point. And few of us, if any, will ever actually be called upon or given the chance to literally die for our wife. Again, that's not the point. Well, then what is the point? The point is, husband, that you should wake up every single day eager to sacrifice for your wife. What this means is that you die daily to your flesh, to your sins, to your wants. Your job, husband, is to wake up each day and die so that you can live to serve her. That's your job. When you said, I do, what you were saying was, I do to die to me to live for you. That's your job. Like the Savior, you are called upon to sacrifice yourself for your bride. Let me share with you still a third word. Again, we're talking about Gaining some sense of clarity and color with respect to how a husband ought to love his wife. Third word is intentionally. Notice the example of our Lord. He loves his bride and gave himself up for her. Why? Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let me ask you this. Was Christ aimless in his love for the church? Did Christ show his love for the church by just sort of sitting on his hands, just sort of seeing what might happen? In all of this, our Lord was intentional. In fact, in verses 26 and 27, Paul spells out for us three purposes of Christ's death on the cross for the church. And the ESV has 
has sort of helpfully identified those three purposes with that word that. So why did Christ give himself up on the cross? For starters, that he might sanctify her, that, that is the church, that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That, that word there, sanctify, it means to make holy or to set apart. This whole concept, it's, it's actually rooted deep in the Old Testament. We think sometimes, well, to be sanctified, to be holy, that means that something is like shiny. No. What it actually means is that such and such a thing was now set apart for God's use. Think of the shovel in the tabernacle that got rid of the ash from the burnt offerings. That shovel was holy. It was sanctified. It was a special shovel for a special purpose. You didn't use it to, to bury, I don't know, you're careful here. You use it specifically for that. Understand that's what Christ does by his blood. He claims us. He makes us his own. He, he sets us apart for God, for God's use. That's not all though. Christ did what he did, verse 27. Here's a second purpose. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Picture in your mind a, a, a bride on her wedding day. Picture her dress, her flowers, her beauty. And then that, that moment right before she removes her veil in front of her soon-to-be husband, is she not radiant? Is she not in those moments perfect? Beloved, that is what Christ's death has accomplished for us, the church. In his altogether pure and righteous life, and in his sin-satisfying death, Christ has bought for us a new, beautiful, radiant wedding garment. We, we are now robed, not in our own righteousness, not in our own filthy rags. We are robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ. It is his gift to us. We receive it by grace alone through faith alone. That's our dress. That's our garment. That's what God sees when he looks at his people. He sees beauty. He sees perfection. He sees his son. Christ has done all of this middle of verse 27. That she, this is the church again, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what our Savior has done. This is what his bloody cross wins for us. It means that because of Christ and what he has done, we are now fit to be in God's presence. Again, thinking of, of marriage, we, we are joined to Christ in this glorious one flesh union. And this is all accomplished because of what Christ, our husband, 
what he has done for us. Because of Christ, we are in him. We are, again, verse 27, holy and without blemish. So I ask you again, was Christ intentional in his love for his bride? Of course he was. So let me encourage you husbands. You must rouse from your passivity. If, if you would even begin to love your wife the way that Christ loves the church, then that will mean that you, husband, have to get to work. Husband, you should be loving and leading your wife toward Christ. Husband, you are supposed to be an instrument of grace in the life of your wife. Husband, your wife... She should look to you and she should see someone who is, who is gently leading her toward the Savior. That's your job. So many, when they, when they hear stuff like Ephesians 5.23, when they hear the husband is the head of the wife, when we speak of authority and responsibility, when pastors call men to leadership, there are those who hear those sort of exhortations, those sort of words, and they sort of, they sort of shriek back, and that is because they fear domination. They hear what has been said this morning, and to use a cultural buzzword, all they can think of is toxic masculinity. And I understand that. There are husbands out there who think that they live in a cave and they drag their wife around by her hair. And to that husband, I say, and the church should say, you must repent. That is evil. But let me be clear. That is not what I see. That is not the sin that worries me. The sin that I see more than any other is not the sin of domination, but it is the sin of abdication. There is no leadership. There is no direction. There is no purpose. There is no drive. There is no intentionality. We're just, as men and husbands, just sort of sitting on our hands, floating by, just seeing whatever happens, and our wives and children are shriveling because of it. Because of passivity. That is what toxic masculinity is. It's men that think because they go to work and get a paycheck that they have fulfilled their God-given command. They haven't even begun. Husbands, you must lead. You must begin to show some initiative. Let me just give you some very sort of training wheels in this. Lead in prayer. Grab your wife this afternoon, this evening, and say, Honey, Will you forgive me? Because I've been dropping the ball for X amount of years. I want to lead us in prayer tonight. And then the very first prayer that you lead your wife in is a prayer of confession. And then lead by grabbing God's word and saying, let's, let's just read a chapter of the Bible together at night. Let me, let me just read it to you. Husbands, lead in joining a church. Lead in instructing the children. Lead in such a way where, where you're structuring the priorities of your family under the priorities of the Lordship of Christ. This is what men, this is what husbands do. They, they lead. 
And this is what love looks like. Husband, love your wife unconditionally. Love her sacrificially. Love her intentionally. And finally, love her affectionately. Verse 28 tells us, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Love, love, love. Nourish, cherish, love, love. Husband, how does Christ show his love to you? And as you're thinking about that, imagine for a moment if Christ were as stern and harsh with you as you are with your wife. What if Christ talked to you and rebuked you the way that you talk and rebuke your wife? What if Christ talked about you the way that you talk about your wife to your buddies at work? But of course, Christ is gentle, isn't he? He's caring. He's patient. As verse 29 tells us, he nourishes us. He cherishes us. Christ is not condescending. He's not rude. He's not dismissive. Christ loves us affectionately. Husband, your job is not less than providing for and protecting your wife. But we have to understand that it's more than that, right? You as a husband must strive to know her, to care for her, to carve out time and, and talk with her and, and love her and to do so in such a way so that she actually feels in her bones that you love her, so that she feels nourished and cherished. This whole thing reminds me of something that Winston Churchill said. Apparently, he was attending some formal banquet in London with a bunch of these big-wig dignitaries. And as all of these big-wig dignitaries do, they, they sit around the table and they talk about things that make no difference in any of life. And this question gets posed, apparently. The question is, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? This is the thing that aristocrats talk about. So person after person goes around the room and they're pontificating and they're giving all of their answers. And eventually it's, it's Churchill's turn. And so this, this man, he rises to his feet and he says, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be. And then he pauses and he takes his wife by the hand and says, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. Right? Major points major points. We should love our wives. We should honor them. We should celebrate them. Matthew Henry reminds us, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. 
under his arm to be protected and near his head to be beloved. That's good, healthy, Calvinistic Puritanism, right? It's affectionate love. Now to all of this, we might be tempted to respond, well, pastor, this all sounds like a lot of work, right? Being a husband, being a wife, like this whole thing, it's a heavy load. I mean, what you're talking about are massive responsibilities. And I agree. This is all gas, no brakes. You're right. But you ever wonder why that is? You ever wonder why that is? Paul tells us, doesn't he? Recognize this. He tells us that marriage, my marriage, your marriage, it is a living and moving and breathing parable of the gospel. When you see a husband and wife filled with the Holy Spirit, when you see a wife who submits to her husband and a husband who loves his wife, what you are seeing is something of an incarnation of the gospel. Isn't that what Paul tells us in verse 32? He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, marriage, marriage, that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, in our day and age, marriage is a mystery that nobody can figure out. But according to God's word, marriage is a mystery in the sense that it unveils the gospel. As a wife submits to her husband, as she serves him and yields to him and honors him and respects him, she's playing the part of the wife. Or rather, she's playing the part of the church. And as the husband loves and leads his wife, as he sacrifices himself for her, as he cherishes her and as he cares for her, husbands, hear this, you are playing the part of Christ. This whole thing, it is meant to be a beautiful dance that portrays the beauty of the gospel. You understand what all of this means, don't you? It means that in the end, marriage is not about you. If you're under the age of 30, I know that's going to come as a shock. Marriage is not about you. It's about Christ. How a husband and wife live together and how they treat one another and the roles that they play. It is all about something bigger than themselves. Think of it this way. Your marriage is meant to be a window. It's meant to be a window that your spouse and your kids and your grandkids and your co-workers and your neighbors and your fellow church members... Your marriage is supposed to be a window that the world looks through and what they see is Christ and his gospel. All of this, everything that we have seen this morning, it's all about Christ's love. It's about his cross, his sacrifice, his blood, his glory, his grace, his gospel. This is why God made marriage Ultimately, God made it for him. God made marriage for his son. He, he made marriage so that our marriages would act like breadcrumbs, leading us back to the gospel and the God of the gospel. 
And so I encourage you this morning in the same way that Paul encouraged the church at Ephesus. Wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, love your wives. And as we do this, this profound mystery will become more and more clear and visible in our midst. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have been tasked by you for uh, quite the high and noble calling as husbands and wives to love and lead, to submit and serve. We've, you have tasked us uh, with these various roles that we might honor your son and his gospel. And we all are very quick this morning to say who is sufficient for such things. So we pray that through the preaching of your word, Father, you would see fit this morning to supply us with the grace of your spirit that we might be the men and women and husbands and fathers and wives and mothers that you have called us to be. We pray that each and every marriage that is represented in this sanctuary would in fact be what you have ordained it to be, and that is a lifelong covenant commitment. We pray for those in our midst who are younger, who are single, who are engaged, who are thinking of marriage, who, who are not thinking of marriage, that you would press these truths upon them, and even now you'd be preparing them to be the husbands and wives that you've called them to be. We pray for those in our midst who have been divorced. We pray that your word and your gospel would be a sweet balm upon their wound. We pray equally for those in our congregation who are widows or widowers. We pray that you would be near to them and encouragement to them. We pray that the church would surround them with love and that they would not feel forgotten. And we pray that in the way that we love and treat one another, that we again would make the gospel more visible. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.